Good morning. It's so good to be in this house, and it's so good to be in this family. If you are new to Redeemer, or if maybe you missed the past few Children and Youth Sundays, I just want to catch you up to speed real quickly. Um, last year we began a series about the way that God connects with His people. It's an image that co comes up and shows up over and over and over through God's Word, and it's this, that God's provision and His presence comes to us like a river of living water. And what we see from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, all the way to Revelation, is that this image comes up and shows us that the river of living water is the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. And so we began in Exodus chapter 17, and we saw God provide living water for his people, even in the face of their rebellion, through water from a rock. We turned to Jeremiah chapter 2, where we saw in the face of Israel's idolatry, God is a fountain of living water. Today we're going to be in John chapter 7, where we see living water come from our Heavenly Father to transform our hearts. And then the next time I'll be with you, we'll look at Revelation 22, where we see living water come to transform heaven and earth. So if you would, open up with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. And before we read, from starting in verse 37, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for these people and thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would send your spirit. Minister to us, myself included, Lord, as we read your word, as we hear your good news. Lord, minister to me, especially, Lord, as I preach your word, because I know that the word cannot come powerfully from my mouth if it's not first come powerfully to my heart. So, Lord, I, we know that you can do that by the miracle of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in everything that's said today. I pray, Lord, that you would change our, our hearts today, transform them by your work. And it's in your precious name that I pray. Amen. John chapter 7, starting in verse 37. <clears throat> On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were, yet to, were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is God's word. Ray Graves um, had the privilege of coaching football in a stadium known as the Swamp in Gainesville, Florida. As you can imagine, it's a pretty hot place. But about 50 years ago, it was, they were experiencing extreme summers, and he was running his players until they would fall out from heat exhaustion, dehydration. And it came from an old school um, perspective on coaching, right? It's, uh, it's illustrated for us pretty well by Coach Boone and Remember the Titans. You remember when one of his players asked for a water break, and he says, water break? Water's for cowards. Water's for the weak. Water's for washing blood out of the uniform, and you don't get blood on my uniform. We're going to do up-downs up until Blue is no longer tired and thirsty. Well, that mentality, that mis mistake in understanding human physiology, landed lots of his players in the hospital. But he found an unlikely partner in Dr. Robert Cade, who was a nephrologist at the local university. He studied kidney function and hydration. And Dr. Cade had started putting electrolytes in a solution in order to help his patients recover more quickly, to replace what their bodies had lost. 
So they worked together with the football team and they started giving this solution to the players. But as you can imagine, some of the players were skeptical. You want me to drink that? It was disgusting. They didn't want to drink it. But they really only had three options. They could continue in their deadly thirst. They could drink what would not satisfy. Because if you drank water when your body was in that condition, you really would become bloated. It wouldn't absorb properly. And so coaches would see that they would slow down if they drank water. So they would keep them from drinking water and make them run harder and harder and harder. So they could continue in their deadly thirst. They could fill themselves with something that could not satisfy. Or they could accept this invitation and drink. And so as you can imagine, Gatorade, the Florida Gators, invented Gatorade. The question for Jesus' hearers today and the question for us is the same. Will you come and accept this invitation? Will you come and drink? Or will you continue in your deadly thirst? Drink what you cannot satisfy. And the question is the same for us and it's the same for the person here who may be skeptical. Maybe you're here today and you're not sure if you believe or you're not sure if you still believe. The question is the same for the person who is suffering today. Sin or circumstances. The question is the same for the person who's been walking with Jesus for 50 years. Come to Jesus, whether you are a doubter or whether you are a deacon. It does not change in regards to how long you've been walking with the Lord or if you're walking with the Lord at all. The invitation is to come. And Jesus makes it for us. But the question then is what next? It's real easy to say, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. But what happens after that? And in this passage we see the ministry of the Holy Spirit transforms our hearts. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And this text presents for us three good reasons to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus because of Christ's condition. Come to Jesus because of Christ's call and come to Jesus because of the Spirit's change. Christ's condition, Christ's call, and the Spirit's change. So first, come to Jesus because of his condition. Look with me at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. And we'll come back to the feast. We'll talk about the Feast of Tabernacles and everything that meant in just a minute. But right now we're going to talk about Jesus' first words here. Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts. And let's not brush past this. Notice what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say, you are all spiritually thirsty and so come to me. But he actually does the opposite. He does not assume their spiritual thirst. He knows that not everyone is spiritually thirsty. And in fact, one chapter before, in John 6, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He knows that people do not naturally spiritually thirst and that not everyone spiritually thirsts. All we have to do is look at it historically. Think about Israel. They had everything that they need, had, had everything they needed in Yahweh. And yet they still continually over and over and over again turned aside to idols. We don't even have to go farther than the disciples. Twelve men who had intimate community with Jesus day in and day out. He knew them. He ate with them. He taught them directly. He loved them. And yet there was one among them, Judas, who had no spiritual thirst, no desire to come to Jesus. And so it's, it's, it's obvious to us, right, that outward conformity to a system of religion does not translate 
into spiritual transformation. Outward conformity to a system of religion does not mean personal, heart-level transformation. We've known those peoples in our lives who have been in the seats next to us, in the church, in our families, who have spoken or even professed faith in Jesus, but their hearts were far from him. Maybe it's even us. Jesus does not assume that we are spiritually thirsty. And in our call to worship, we read Psalm 42, and you remember what it says there, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. Uh, in Scripture, and especially the Psalms, worship is connected with this analogy of thirst. That thirsting after something communicates that you have to have it for life. Thirsting for God, a spiritual thirst only given to us by the Father, results in a desperation for God and a dependence on God. A desperation for God and a dependence on God. But the reality is, is that for many of us, we struggle with being good without God. Good without God. Walker Percy described this, particularly in the U.S. South, as a place that is Christ-haunted. Where echoes of the things he has said and done are there, but that he is not worshipped as the true one living God. A Christ-haunted place. But what Jesus does is he makes spiritual thirst the only precondition, the only requirement for eternal life, for coming to him. If you are thirsty. I hate um, giving blood. The main reason for that is I have very small, rolly veins. Any of the nurses in the room are going to understand what I mean. So they typically have to stick me multiple times in each arm before they can get anything. But when I was applying for health insurance or medical insurance, or even when I was doing my home study to become an adoptive dad, they always had to take blood, and it never went well. <laughs> but why were they looking for that? Why were they taking blood? They had to make sure that I didn't have a pre-existing condition. Back then, with medical and health and life, I could have been denied coverage if I had had a pre-existing condition, right? If I had been gravely sick, and even to become an adoptive father, they could have said, you're not fit for this. What Jesus is saying here is that it's not the pre-existing condition that will disqualify you for my kingdom, but it's actually the, the pre-existing condition qualifies you for my kingdom. You must be thirsty, and that is the only condition that is given for those who will come. Only the thirsty will come, and not everyone is thirsty. But the thing is, it's not, our problem is not where to find this living water. We're sitting here, aren't we? Our problem is so often not where to find the living water, but that we feel no thirst at all. But friends, if today you do feel that thirst... If for the first time or after a life of following Jesus, I want you to rejoice that Jesus has given you the Holy Spirit and wet that appetite and drawing you to Jesus even now. And that this thirst for God, this desire for God, this worship of God is not a result of your work, not a result of any decision, not a result of any enlightenment that you have come to. It's all of Jesus. The condition that is set by Jesus is met by Jesus. Do you hear me? The condition that is set by Jesus is met by Jesus on the cross and his giving of the Holy Spirit, which is what we're going to continue to talk about today. This is expressed really, really well in the old hymn by Joseph Hart, Come Ye Sinners. 
Listen to what he says. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam. So come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry or wait till you're better, you'll never come at all. Not the righteous, it's sinners that Jesus came to call. So friends, come to Jesus because of the condition that he has set and that he has met on the cross and in the resurrection. Next, come to Jesus because of Christ's call. Look with me again at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Notice what Jesus does there. He ties this illustration, this analogy of drinking, directly to belief. Look with me at the text. Let him come to me and drink. He continues the thought with the next sentence. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, those who were listening to Jesus, would not, the, the occasion would have not have been lost on them. This was at the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a feast that was commanded in Leviticus chapter 23. And it was a seven-day feast. This was the last day of the seven days. And one of the things they would do during the feast is they would set up booths. It's also called the Feast of Booths. But in the Feast of Tabernacles, they'd set up these tabernacles or booths outside of their house, houses. They'd eat in them. They'd sleep in them to remember the time in the wilderness when God was with them. To remember that God was with them. And so they would do their eating and their drinking to remember that God gave them manna in the wilderness. That God gave them water from the rock. And they were remembering this time. And in Jesus' day, by this time, there were some new ceremonies that had started to happen. And there was one, and in some, some records show this, that they would take a water from the pool of Siloam and they'd walk it all the way to the temple. And while singing psalms about going to the house of the Lord, they would pour out that water at the temple. They're remembering how God gave them water in the wilderness. And Jesus stands up on that last day and says, it's me. He's making himself the cornerstone of a new temple. Friends, do you hear it? Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is saying, I am the source of living water. And in his words, come to me, they would have heard Isaiah chapter 55. Come to me and drink, anyone who is thirsty. Come, buy, and eat without money, without price. They also would have heard from our Old Testament scripture reading from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 32, that the Holy Spirit would be poured out and that all of creation would be transformed. As the Holy Spirit is poured out, as Christ calls us, calls his people to himself, he says, I will give you the Holy Spirit and the very fabric of reality will be changed as we move from the age of the flesh into the age of the Spirit. All of creation and new heavens and a new earth are being inaugurated as Jesus promises to send this Spirit. And it all starts with belief. How simple. How in our minds foolish that the very fabric of reality would change by believing. By believing. It all starts with coming to Jesus. But what does coming to Jesus actually look like? C.S. Lewis describes it really well in a story about a girl named Jill as she comes before the lion Aslan. She's dying of thirst. There's a stream ahead of her, but the lion is just on the other side. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? 
I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion only answered this by a look and a very low growl. As Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come one step closer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming one step nearer. I suppose I must go look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It is a terrifying prospect for us to come before the Lord of the universe. Believing in Jesus for you is putting yourself in the most utmost vulnerable position before the mighty lion of Judah. The Holy One of Israel, the God who created this universe. And yet here he is inviting you to drink deeply. And friends, it is one thing to look at the stream and say, yes, that is what I need. Yes, Jesus is what I need. That stream is what I need. But it is another thing for that intellectual assent. Yes, I know that's what I need to translate into drinking. To translate into love trust and obedience, moving towards Jesus in the fruit of faith. Belief is not merely knowing where the fountain is, knowing where the stream is. It's not merely spiritual activity, and it's not merely good feelings towards God. But as we see in this text, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Belief translates into transformation of your heart, a love from the core of who you are. A love from the core of who you are. This word heart, we translate it heart, but it's actually gut. It's belly. It's the deepest part of who you are, which is how they thought about it in the ancient world. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. We separate it out and think our mind is our intellect, our heart is where we love and all that. For them, the heart was the seat of all of our greatest desires. The seat of our allegiances what we love, what wakes us up in the morning. So then belief in Jesus is a love that's flowing from us, heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this is what Jesus is inviting us to today. Maybe today you've grown cynical of yourself. The battle against sin is not won. You're cynical of yourself, you're cynical of others. Jesus says, come to me and believe. Maybe today you have associated your faith in God with an intellectual assent to some true things in God's word. I pray that you would come all the way to him and believe in love, trust, and obedience. Maybe today you have been so busy proving yourself to yourself and to others that your heart is far, far away from God. Come to Jesus and believe. Maybe today you have been controlling your environment and the people around you 
to try and create some semblance of life so that you do not feel any need for God. Come to Jesus and believe. Maybe today you are paralyzed by fear. The what if, what might happen. Friends, come to Jesus and believe. Come to Jesus and believe. And this is not once. If you have come to Jesus and believed, if you have called on him as your Savior, you are right before God. You are made right and justified in a moment. There's nothing that you did to contribute to it, and there's nothing that you can do to have it taken away. Amen. But you were not made simply to be right with God. You were made for communion with God. A daily desperation and dependence, continually coming to him for the refreshment that we need. You were made right with God in a moment if you've believed in him, but you are made dependent on him for a lifetime. So come to him if you don't know him, if you are not following him, but come to him if you've been following him for 50 years. But what does that look like? What next? I've come to Jesus. I believe in Jesus. What happens after that? Come to Jesus because of the Spirit's change. Come to Jesus because of the Spirit's change. Look with me at verse 39. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. John explains for us what Jesus is saying. There's this shadowy mystery all the way through the Old Testament. Like we said, in Exodus, in Ezekiel, in Isaiah... In Jeremiah, I will send my spirit. I will pour out living water. What is that talking about? And then John helpfully explains what Jesus is saying with mystery and saying that the provision and presence of God will build into a crescendo that Israel never knew was possible. That the spirit would, like I said, change the very fabric of reality. And yet, he provides another condition. There's another conditional statement. Look with me. He said this about the Spirit, whom the, those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because why? Jesus had not yet been glorified. What does this mean? There's some mystery here. But a friend and mentor of mine just recently pointed this out. We're one week removed from Easter. And do you remember that beautiful Easter text, John 20? When Mary Magdalene goes to the grave of her Savior and she finds it empty... And in her grief and her weeping, she doesn't even recognize his voice until he calls her name and she turns around and says, Teacher, and what is her impulse in that moment? She wants to cling to him, right? Remember, Jesus was a loved one, the one who had set her free from the power of Satan. And he was gone. Which one of us wouldn't want to have one more moment to hold that lost loved one in our arms for a moment, just a moment? And that's what she wanted. What, what does Jesus say to her? Do you remember? Do not cling to me. Why? Because I have not yet ascended to my Father. Jesus, you're here. You're alive. Why can I not cling to you? There's, he's, could it be that he's saying there's something better coming? And there is. He would say later in John chapter 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him 
For he dwells with you and will be in you. Could it be that the ministry of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and with us is better than even the physical presence of Jesus? Better than clinging to our resurrected loved one? Jesus is essentially saying, wait until I'm glorified. Wait until I am ascended. You will enjoy a union with me that is better than any embrace. A union, a communion with me that is better than anything you thought possible. And remember, where are they? They're at the Feast of Tabernacles. What did we celebrate in the Feast of Tabernacles? God in a tent living with his people while they're living in a tent. And then what would happen to the tent of God's body, of Jesus' body here on earth? It would be torn. It would be broken down. God with us. A level of connection with our God that we never thought possible. And now it's gone. He's killed, humiliated. But what would happen? He would be exalted. He would be vindicated. He would be coronated. He would be glorified. And friends, he would endure the cross and despise the shame of that cross. And he would be exalted for the joy set before him and delight in giving us the gift of a helper. Delight at the right hand of God the Father right now in sending us a helper. God himself, the Holy Spirit, in us and with us. And what the disciples saw by faith was made sight. You remember what happened in Acts chapter 2? All the way through Isaiah and Ezekiel, it says, I'll pour out my spirit. The world will be transformed. I'll give you a new heart. And in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And the world would never be the same. God with his people in a more intimate way than even the physical presence of Jesus. And our faith will be made sight in that new heavens and new earth when the Holy Spirit turns this wilderness, this wasteland, into a fruitful field, into a forest. But there's a change even now. Track with me. We're, we're not just talking about a change someday in the future when everything will be met, made better. What he's talking about here is a personal transformation from our hearts that will happen because of the Holy Spirit. What kind of change is this? Is this just a behavior change? Is it a change in doctrine? Is it a change in thinking? Is it a change in feeling? Friends, it's so much more. It's so much deeper. Like I said, it's to the deepest part of who you are. The Holy Spirit is not a spiritual power for us to tap into to do cool things. He is God himself indwelling us, living with us, tabernacling with us. For the beginning of my, I'd say, adult life, teenage into adult life, I was racked by sin, I was crippled by anxiety, and I was living for the approval of others. And externally, I was managing it pretty well until the day that I wasn't. It was in college when everything fell apart. And my dad came up to see me. And there was this one biology lab that I spent a lot of time in. And I like to call it the dungeon because it's, it was below ground and you actually couldn't really, it's kind of like these windows up here, you can kind of see out of them, but they're blocked. And so you could see these forms walking by other students. It's kind of like Plato's cave. You're just kind of watching things go by outside. So I'm sitting in the dungeon and my dad is sitting with me and I'm lamenting all of my sinful motives. I'm lamenting what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with me. I'm doubting my career path. I'm doubting everything. And I kept looking at all of my motives and examining myself and just thinking, what in the world is going on? And I'll never forget what my dad said to me. 
He looked at me with compassion, but he spoke with some firmness. And he said, Zach, the further you look into your own heart, the more darkness you will find. Are you surprised by the sin that you're seeing there? He said, look up. Look to your Savior. He was just echoing what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. Come to Jesus. Behold the power and the glory of your Savior and find freedom. Freedom. And this freedom is not in an instant. It is a lifelong process of dying to sin and walking by the Spirit. It's not all at once. It's not simple. It's not easy. It's not clean. But it is sure as the sun will rise because God has promised to give us a helper. God has promised to give us a helper. So come out of the dungeon Come out of isolation and behold your Savior. Look at him. There is no greater personal connection than the union that we have with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. We know that Jesus is bodily in heaven right now, but we are intimately connected to him by the work of the Holy Spirit, united to him. As he speaks to us in Scripture, as we pray, he intercedes for us with groans that are too deep for words. Remember Romans 8, as he witnesses with your spirit and reminds you that you are a child of God. And how often do we forget that? You are a child of God. That is one of the major tasks of the Holy Spirit in our heart. He turns our heart from a grave, a place of dead things, to a garden of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He renews our hearts to believe. And in Ephesians, it tells us that he is grieved by our sin. God himself in our hearts, united to us, is grieved by our sin. And yet he still secures for us God's love. He is like a seal set on our heart to show us who we belong to, continually reminding us, even in our sin, who we truly are as God's children. And he cleanses us of that sin like a river of living water, washing it away. And friends, the Holy Spirit brings joy, peace, hope, freedom, and transformation. So Redeemer, come to Jesus, drink deeply, and find life in the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, these things are too wonderful for us to understand. We've barely scratched the surface of your love for us and what you've done for us. But I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us today. Encourage these people by your presence with them. Thank you for the ministry of the Spirit. I pray that we would not forget him or downplay the importance of his work in our hearts. Thank you so much, Lord, for the glorious love of Jesus. And I pray that it would manifest itself in the way we live our lives this week and for the rest of our lives. And it's in your precious name that I pray. Amen.